Chapter Two of the Quintessence of Ibsenism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suman Barua, Toronto, Ontario. The Quintessence of Ibsenism by George Bernard Shaw, Chapter Two ideals and idealists we have seen that as man grows through the ages he finds himself bolder by the growth of his spirit if i may so name the unknown and dares more and more to love and trust instead of to fear and fight but his courage has other effects he also raises himself from mere consciousness to knowledge by daring more and more to face facts and tell himself the truth for in his infancy of helplessness and terror he could not face the inexorable and facts being of all things the most inexorable he masked all the threatening ones as fast as he discovered them so that now every mask requires a hero to tear it off the king of terrors death was the arch inexorable man could not bear the dread of that thought he must persuade himself that death could be propitiated circumvented abolished how he fixed the mask of immortality on the face of death for this purpose we all know and he did the like with all disagreeables as long as they remained inevitable otherwise he must have gone mad with terror of the grim shapes around him headed by the skeleton with the scythe and hourglass the masks were his ideals as he called them and what he would ask would life be without ideals thus he became an idealist and remained so until he dared to begin pulling the masks off and looking the spectres in the face dared that is to be more and more a realist but all men are not equally brave and the greatest terror prevailed whenever some realist bolder than the rest laid hands on a mask which they did not yet dare to do without we have plenty of these masks around us still, some of them more fantastic than any of the Sandwich Islanders' masks in the British Museum. In our novels and romances especially we see the most beautiful of all the masks, those devised to disguise the brutalities of the sexual instinct in the earlier stages of its development, and to soften the rigorous aspect of the iron laws by which society regulates its gratification when the social organism becomes bent on civilization it has to force marriage and family life on the individual because it can perpetuate itself in no other way whilst love is still known only by fitful glimpses the basis of sexual relationship being in the main mere physical appetite under these circumstances men try to graft pleasure on necessity by desperately pretending that the institution forced upon them is a congenial one making it a point of public decency to assume always that men spontaneously love their kindred better than their chance acquaintances and that the woman once desired is always desired also that the family is woman's proper sphere and that no really womanly woman ever forms an attachment or even knows what it means until she is requested to do so by a man now if anyone's childhood has been embittered by the dislike of his mother and the ill-temper of his father if his wife has ceased to care for him and he is heartily tired of his wife 
if his brother is going to law with him over the division of the family property and his son acting in studied defiance of his plans and wishes it is hard for him to persuade himself that passion is eternal and that blood is thicker than water yet if he tells himself the truth all his life seems a waste and a failure by the light of it it comes then to this that his neighbors must either agree with him that the whole system is a mistake and discard it for a new one which cannot possibly happen until social organization so far outgrows the institution that society can perpetuate itself without it or else they must keep him in countenance by resolutely making believe that all the illusions with which it has been masked are realities for the sake of precision let us imagine a community of a thousand persons organized for the perpetuation of the species on the basis of the british family as we know it at present seven hundred of them we will suppose find the british family arrangement quite good enough for them two hundred and ninety-nine find it a failure but must put up with it since they are in a minority the remaining person occupies a position to be explained presently the two ninety-nine failures will not have the courage to face the fact that they are failures irremediable failures since they cannot prevent the seven hundred satisfied ones from coercing them into conformity with the marriage law they will accordingly try to persuade themselves that whatever their own particular domestic arrangements may be the family is a beautiful and wholly natural institution for the fox not only declares that the grapes he cannot get are sour he also insists that the sloes he can get are sweet now observe what has happened the family as it really is is a conventional arrangement legally enforced which the majority because it happens to suit them think good enough for the minority whom it happens not to suit at all the family as a beautiful and wholly natural institution is only a fancy picture of what every family would have to be if everybody was to be suited invented by the minority as a mask for the reality which in its nakedness is intolerable to them we call this sort of fancy picture an ideal and the policy of forcing individuals to act on the assumption that all ideals are real and to recognize and accept such action as standard moral conduct absolutely valid under all circumstances contrary conduct or any advocacy of it being discountenanced and punished as immoral may therefore be described as the policy of idealism our two ninety-nine domestic failures are therefore become idealists as to marriage and in proclaiming the ideal in fiction poetry pulpit and platform oratory and serious private conversation they will far outdo the seven hundred who comfortably accept marriage as a matter of course never dreaming of calling it an institution much less a holy and beautiful one and being pretty plainly of opinion that idealism is a crack-brain fuss about nothing the idealists heard by this will retort by calling them philistines we then have our society classified as seven hundred philistines and two ninety-nine idealists leaving one man unclassified he is the man who is strong enough to face the truth that the idealists are shirking 
he says flatly of marriage this thing is a failure for many of us it is insufferable that two human beings having entered into relations which only warm affection can render tolerable should be forced to maintain them after such affections have ceased to exist or in spite of the fact that they have never arisen the alleged natural attractions and repulsions upon which the family ideal is based do not exist and it is historically false that the family was founded for the purpose of satisfying them let us provide otherwise for the social ends which the family subserves and then abolish its compulsory character altogether what will be the attitude of the rest to this outspoken man the philistines will simply think him mad but the idealists will be terrified beyond measure at the proclamation of their hidden thought at the presence of the traitor among the conspirators of silence at the rending of the beautiful veil they and their poets have woven to hide the unbearable face of the truth they will crucify him burn him violate their own ideals of family affection by taking his children away from him ostracize him brand him as immoral profligate filthy and appeal against him to the despised philistines specially idealized for the occasion as society how far they will proceed against him depends on how far his courage exceeds theirs at his worst they call him cynic and paradoxer at his best they do their utmost to ruin him if not to take his life thus publicly courageous moralists like mandeville and la Rouchefoucauld, who merely state unpleasant facts without denying the validity of current ideals and who indeed depend on those ideals to make their statements piquant get off with nothing worse than this name of cynic the free use of which is a familiar mark of the zealous idealist but take the case of the man who has already served us as an example shelley the idealists did not call shelley a cynic they called him a fiend until they invented a new illusion to enable them to enjoy the beauty of his lyrics said illusion being nothing less than the pretense that since he was at bottom an idealist himself his ideals must be identical with those of tennyson and longfellow neither of whom ever wrote a line in which some highly respectable ideal was not implicit footnote the following are examples of the two stages of shelley criticism we feel as if one of the darkest of the fiends had been clothed with a human body to enable him to gratify his enmity against the human race and as if the supernatural atrocity of his hate were only heightened by his power to do injury so strongly has this impression dwelt upon our minds that we absolutely asked a friend who had seen this individual to describe him to us as if a cloven hoof or horn or flames from the mouth must have marked the external appearance of so bitter an enemy of mankind literary gazette nineteenth may eighteen twenty one a beautiful and ineffectual angel beating in the void his luminous wings in vain matthew arnold in his preface to the selection of poems by byron dated eighteen eighty one the eighteen eighty one opinion is much sillier than the eighteen twenty one opinion further samples will be found in the articles of henry salt one of the few writers on shelley who understand his true position as a social pioneer
End of footnote. Here the admission that Shelley, the realist, was an idealist too, seems to spoil the whole argument. And it certainly spoils its verbal consistency. For we unfortunately use this word ideal indifferently to denote both the institution which the ideal masks and the mask itself, thereby producing desperate confusion of thought, since the institution may be an effete and poisonous one, whilst the mask may be, and indeed generally is, an image of what we would fain have in its place. If the existing facts, with their masks on, are to be called ideals, and the future possibilities which the masks depict are also to be called ideals, if again the man who is defending existing institutions by maintaining their identity with their masks is to be confounded under one name with the man who is striving to realize the future possibilities by tearing the mask and the thing masked asunder, then the position cannot be intelligibly described by mortal pen, you and I, reader, will be at cross-purposes at every sentence, unless you allow me to distinguish pioneers like Shelley and Ibsen as realists from the idealists of my imaginary community of one thousand. If you ask why I have not allotted the terms the other way, and called Shelley and Ibsen idealists, and the conventionalists realists, I reply that Ibsen himself, though he has not formally made the distinction, has so repeatedly harped on conventions and conventionalists as ideals and idealists, that if I were now perversely to call them realities and realists, I should confuse readers of the wild duck and rosemachon more than I should help them. Doubtless I shall be reproached by puzzling people by thus limiting the meaning of the term ideal. But what I ask is that inevitable passing perplexity compared to the inextricable tangle I must produce if I follow the custom and use the word indiscriminately in its two violently incompatible senses. If the term realist is objected to on account of some of its modern associations, I can only recommend you, if you must associate it with something else than my own description of its meaning, I do not deal in definitions, to associate it not with Zola and Maupassant, but with Plato. Now let us return to our community of 700 Philistines, 299 idealists and one realist. The mere verbal ambiguity against which I have just provided is as nothing beside that which comes of any attempt to express the relations of these three sections, simple as they are, in terms of the ordinary systems of reason and duty. The idealist, higher in the ascent of evolution than the Philistine, yet hates the highest and strikes at him with a dread and rancor of which the easy-going Philistine is guiltless. The man who has risen above the danger and the fear that his acquisitiveness will lead him to theft, his temper to murder, and his affections to debauchery, this is he who is denounced as an art-scoundrel and libertine, and thus confounded with the lowest because he is the highest. And it is not the ignorant and stupid who maintain this error, but the literate and the cultured. When the true prophet speaks, he is proved to be both rascal and idiot, 
not by those who have never read of how foolishly such learned demonstrations have come off in the past but by those who have themselves written volumes on the crucifixions the burnings the stonings the headings and hangings the siberia transportations the calumny and ostracism which have been the lot of the pioneer as well as of the camp follower it is from men of established literary reputation that we learn that william blake was mad that shelley was spoiled by living in a low set that robert owen was a man who did not know the world that ruskin is incapable of comprehending political economy that zola is a mere blackguard and that ibsen is a zola with a wooden leg the great musician accepted by the unskilled listener is vilified by his fellow musicians it was the musical culture of europe that pronounced wagner the inferior of mendelssohn and meyerbeer the great artist finds his foes among the painters and not among the men in the street it is the royal academy which places mr marcus stone not to mention mr hodson above mr burne jones it is not rational that it should be so but it is so for all that the realist at last loses patience with ideals altogether and sees in them only something to blind us something to numb us something to murder self in us something whereby instead of resisting death we can disarm it by committing suicide the idealist who has taken refuge with the ideals because he hates himself and is ashamed of himself thinks that all this is so much the better the realist who has come to have a deep respect for himself and faith in the validity of his own will thinks it so much the worse to the one human nature naturally corrupt is only held back from the excesses of the last years of the roman empire by self-denying conformity to the ideals to the other these ideals are only swaddling clothes which man has outgrown and which insufferably impede his movements no wonder that two cannot agree the idealist says realism means egotism and egotism means depravity the realist declares that when a man abnegates the will to live and be free in a world of the living and free seeking only to conform to ideals for the sake of being not himself but a good man then he is morally dead and rotten and must be left unheeded to abide his resurrection if that by good luck arrive before his bodily death unfortunately this is the sort of speech that nobody but a realist understands it will be more amusing as well as more convincing to take an actual example of an idealist criticizing a realist End of chapter two